Please listen carefully. This week on Making Contact. They said that I was illiterate. You're making me feel like you're, you're so high above me that I'm beneath you. That's going to make any kid feel bad. African-American students across the country are more likely than any other student group to be placed in special education. In a documentary from San Francisco, California, we hear what is and isn't working for Black students with special needs today. Lee Romney is an independent journalist who covers education for KALW in San Francisco. She told me how she came to produce this program. I... Uh, ended up getting a small fellowship from USC Center for Health Journalism to do a series of pieces looking at uh, the experiences of African-American students and families in San Francisco schools because I wanted to get beneath test score disparities and the equity gap that we see in mostly just reflected in test scores and really try to look a bit more at some of the structural and historical reasons why um, there are disparities in education um, in urban school districts across the country, but you know, looking at San Francisco. And special ed was something that was on my mind from the beginning. Um, I was aware of the general data trends, that there's disproportionality in special ed designations, and that African-American students are, across the country, more likely to be uh, placed in special ed particularly for behavioral designations, um, like emotional disturbance or uh, anything really related to what is perceived as problematic behavior. So, you know, I kind of went in thinking that that was what I was going to find. And you came to find that African-American students are more likely to be placed in special ed. I found that it was in some ways a really nuanced issue and that this this overrepresentation in certain categories does still exist and we can play a little bit of tape of this 18-year-old high school senior um, we decided uh, not to name him or name his school to protect his privacy well, I'm in the class I'm in the class and I see they're teaching different but I know I'm, I'm on a higher level than that it's like kind of make me mad because I make me feel kind of like bad and stuff. They think I'm that, so I might as well just show them that. Say we go visit another class, like they have me labeled. I was like, oh, make sure he doesn't like explode or anything. And so I reacted in a terrible way. His story was kind of the one I expected to find, and it's one that is ongoing. He was placed in special ed in a special, in a, you know, a segregated class when he was seven years old for behavioral issues, and he felt that um, the academics were dumbed down, that he could do better than that, and also, you know, that he he was um, just perceived as a kid who was just going to be angry all the time. And this went on, you know, through up until he got into high school where he's actually doing quite well, except for at one school where he actually did well. And, you know, the surprising thing was, you know, what was the magic that happened that helped this young boy at the time control himself, and and uh, it was a teacher. He, like, he know how to talk to me, like he not all like mean or disrespectful. Like, he'll talk to me, make me step outside, like talk to him, having conversations. Did it feel like the first time a teacher was Yes, like ever, yeah. She was like ever nice to me. But the other thing that I found that I think was um, more surprising to me is as I talked to families, um, especially to a lot of moms, 
um, what I kept hearing was they wanted services for their kids and they didn't feel uh, like they were able to get them. My reporting came out of San Francisco and San Francisco Unified specifically, but this is an issue across the country that black students are um, placed into special ed at disproportionate rates in certain categories and that parents feel that it's just a really difficult system to navigate. But I think it's it's just an extremely complex issue and all things are true. There's overrepresentation, underrepresentation, misrepresentation uh, across the country. But the one thing you can say is that uh, black students are not being served well still in special education. In a Bayview School Auditorium, African-American parents are gathered in a circle to share some pizza and talk about special education. A lot of black parents have to navigate that system because today nearly one in three black students in district schools is in special ed, compared to one in eight non-black students. Being that we serve a lot of the same populations... Every special ed student gets what's known under federal law as an Individualized Education Program, or IEP. It spells out their struggles and the support they'll get at school, like one-on-one instruction, extra time on tests, therapy, or a one-on-one aid. Nearly all the black parents in this room have pushed to get their children placed in special ed, but none are happy with the system for a whole bunch of reasons. Trying to figure out, do I go ahead with this process of identifying my son, a black African-American boy, as special ed? knowing everything that comes along with that. That was really hard for me. What comes along with that is a troubled history. Decades of black students perceived as troublemakers and steered into categories of special ed that don't fit or meet their needs. This mom says her son's special ed plan identified his main issue as difficulty understanding directions. He's supposed to get support for that, not get in trouble. Even so... Every report card, no matter how good his grade was, Everything he says does not follow directions. Mm -hmm. Does not follow directions. Did you read his paperwork? Boys are especially likely to be mislabeled and misunderstood for what adults at school perceive as aggression or defiance. But it's not just boys, says Marisha Robinson, whose eighth grade daughter is in special ed. It was just, she's a cut up, she's a cut up, she's a cut up. Like, how do we curb the behavior, behavior, behavior? And it was all punitive. Marisha co-chairs the African-American Parent Advisory Council, and she's facilitating tonight. She tells the group it took her two years to get her daughter assessed for what turned out to be a cognitive issue. Maybe, she says, because the district didn't want to stigmatize another black child with a special ed label. But she thinks stereotypes played into it, too. Of her being a black, a, a black girl or a black woman. Aggressive. She's adultifying her, or she's sassy, or she's outspoken. Another mom joins the conversation. As a low-income black parent, she says, just trying to be heard around what she thinks her son needs is exhausting. I'm so tired of fighting against a system that is supposed to be erected to help my child. I'm sick of it. I don't think that we can um, move forward until... We stop pretending. We've been band-aiding this for decades. 
A lot has improved at SFUSD, but to understand the despair in this room, it helps to go back to 1968. We've been from here on our free will, our big year for civil rights protest and advocacy, even in the field of psychology. That year, a group of black psychologists broke off from the American Psychological Association to form their own organization. Strategy for politicizing black psychology was the theme of this year's convention of black psychologists. They wanted major universities to recruit more black psychologists and more grad schools to train them. They called for more mental health services for the black community and black prisoners and... The most significant one was in the area of education, the use of culturally biased, standardized tests, including the IQ test, on the placement of students in special education. Psychologist Harold Dent is 90 years old now. He and some colleagues founded the Association of Black Psychologists and its Bay Area chapter in 1968. Not long after, black parents started showing up at San Francisco's Urban League office and said that they didn't appreciate their children being called retarded when they didn't believe their children were retarded. And we went down and met with the families. State education code required school districts across California to use IQ test results when assessing students for special ed. They relied on the tests heavily, tracking tens of thousands of black children into a special ed category known as educable mentally retarded. Denton's colleagues tried negotiating with district and state officials, but the talks went nowhere. So in 1971, local civil rights lawyers told them... The best thing would be to file a class action suit against the state and the San Francisco public schools for using biased psychological tests on black children. And that was the thought of Larry P. The legal case, Larry P. versus California's then-state superintendent of instruction. The case is a big deal in the special ed world. It's the subject of books, a lot of academic articles, and plenty of debate. Still, Larry P. was the pseudonym given to the main plaintiff to protect his privacy. He was one of six black students who filed suit in federal court against the district and the state, alleging they were improperly labeled educable, mentally retarded, and placed in what the court called dead-end classes. A high percentage of those students were African-American. As a group, they performed more poorly on IQ tests. Tests, the court concluded, were biased toward knowledge they hadn't acquired for cultural reasons and because many got inferior educations at inferior schools. Once they landed in special ed, the judge wrote, they were doomed to fall farther and farther behind because instead of academics... Their classes emphasized personal hygiene and grooming, social and emotional adjustment, and basic home and community living skills. The district had presented its special ed system as colorblind, but in his 1979 ruling, the judge made it clear it wasn't. An IQ test ruled unconstitutional and discriminatory today. The category of educable mentally retarded went away by the mid-1980s, and after some legal wrangling, the court lifted the testing ban. But state education officials didn't. Because of the Larry P. case, California still prohibits the use of intelligence testing on black students for any kind of special ed placement. It's the only state that does that. Lots of people talk about Larry P. the case. But as soon as I hear about it, I know I want to find Larry P. the man. No one seems to know what became of the kids who sued until I tracked down another elderly psychologist who wrote a book about the case. 
he remembers that Larry P. moved to Tacoma, Washington, and went public with his real name when he and his mom came back to San Francisco to testify in the case. I dig up an old newspaper clipping, and there he is. My name is Daryl Lester. You sent a text message to my wife, Cecilia Lester. Daryl's 60 years old now and still lives in Tacoma. He never knew his pseudonym was Larry P., and he has no idea that the case had lasting impact, but he remembers everything about his schooling. Play radio, Tacoma's radio station. I fly up to meet him. It feels big. Enrollment in the special ed category of educable mentally retarded peaked statewide in 1968 at nearly 60,000 students. More than a quarter of them were black, even though African Americans made up less than 10% of the student body. The year before the judge ruled, SFUSD's ratio was even more extreme. Half the kids in that category were black. The judge had said the whole class of plaintiffs was mistreated, robbed of an education. I want to know about the scars these kids have carried. Hi. Hi. I'm Lee. I'm Daryl. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. And Daryl, who no one's ever tracked down until now, he has answers. We settle in on the plush sectional sofa to talk. Daryl and his wife live in a housing project that was redeveloped into a neighborhood of two-story townhouses. Their place is homey, covered in family photos. That picture there was 4th of July that we had a guy draw us for $25. He did a good job. Other stuff is just decoration. You know, we tried to liven the place up a little bit and spice it up. I pull out the ruling in the Larry P. case, nearly 90 pages long. My case? Yeah. wow. Yeah, this is your case. And I read to him about how the IQ tests they used... Allegedly result in the misplacement of black children in special classes that doom them to stigma, inadequate education, and failure to develop the skills necessary to productive success in our society. Daryl's nodding. He says memories of school have been popping in his brain since I called. He and his mom and brothers moved to San Francisco from Marietta, Georgia, right before first grade. Because she didn't want to find us uh, dead one day, hanging by a tree or whatever, you know, because it was still going on. He fell behind fast. It was just certain things I couldn't read when it came to reading and stuff. Other stuff I did fine. I was very good at math. So Daryl did have a learning difficulty, a really specific one. He needed help with reading. He never got it. But he did get teased, he got angry, and he got suspended a lot. That's common. Black students in special ed, especially boys, are kicked out of the classroom more than just about any other student group, still. They said that I was illiterate. You're making me feel like you're, you're so high above me that I'm beneath you. That's going to make any kid feel bad. You know, he's going to lash out. When the family moved to public housing in Hunters Point to be close to Daryl's new school, his education got even worse. I walked to school and cried all the way. I just didn't like it, you know, because they wasn't teaching us nothing. Lots of recess time and field trips, Daryl says, but pretty much no instruction Daryl didn't know it at the time, but his mom was one of the black parents working to sue the district. He never got any benefit from that, though, because in 1971, the year the Larry P. case was filed, mom took the boys and moved north to Tacoma. Remember how the judge said kids placed in dead-end classes fall further and further behind? Well, that's what happened to Daryl. Before starting at his new high school, he took placement tests. I failed. 
so they said, well, okay, we're going to put you in special aid in the half a day program. Well, what's that? Well, you, you get up in the morning and you're going to go over to Safeway. Safeway, the grocery store? And they said, yeah, that's going to help you with your credits. Daryl worked for free from 7.30 to 11 a.m. every morning before attending a few classes in the back of the high school. After a while, his family protested, and the school put him in with the general population. Daryl says he tried really hard, went to summer school and night school, but even though he walked in his graduation ceremony, he later found out he was two credits short of a diploma. It's like your whole life, what did I go to school for? I didn't learn anything. He never got his GED. Man, I didn't want nothing to do with school anymore after all that. After all what I've been through, I was so angry because I was basically embarrassed of myself because there was things I needed to learn that I didn't learn. That changed his life. Daryl had a rough time after high school. Addiction, low-wage jobs, and hard physical labor in the aluminum industry that left him disabled. His reading skills are so bad that he threw out the workers' comp letter telling him he'd been awarded benefits. His wife, Cecilia, was there with her mom and wound up retrieving it from the trash. And she said, Mom, 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 Daryl's throwing away money. (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) Let's go back to my reading. Uh You know, that's where... A lot of that takes place. Like when I get my mail and stuff, I, if I can't read my mail and all this and everything, thank God I have her, you know. You're listening to the documentary A Legacy of Mistreatment on Making Contact. For more information about this and other programs, go to our website at radioproject.org. Now back to the show. Daryl's just one man, but as Larry P., he represented a huge class of California's black students. I have to imagine there are lots more like him who've struggled with dead-end jobs and low self-worth, and the damage didn't end with them. The judge made districts reassess all black special ed students statewide without IQ tests, and the numbers dropped a lot, but black kids still wound up in special ed way more than other students in new categories of specific learning disability emotional disturbance, and more recently, other health impairment. That includes ADD and ADHD. Kids who've experienced trauma are sometimes misdiagnosed with that and mistakenly labeled emotionally disturbed because those categories are more subjective, more susceptible to implicit bias. In 2010, an audit of San Francisco Unified found that black students made up a little over a tenth of the district's student body, but a fourth of special ed students the same disproportionality that the judge in the Larry P. case had condemned statewide from 1968. The audit also found that Black San Francisco Unified students made up half the students deemed emotionally disturbed. And they were also way more likely to be placed in segregated schools or classes. It was transformative coming out of that audit. It was a big aha. That's Jean Robertson, San Francisco Unified's Chief of Special Ed Services. Since that audit, she says the district's changed its whole approach to support more struggling students early on so they never even land in special ed, to do deeper assessments that take a child's whole life story into account, 
and to try to better tailor services to each special ed student instead of putting them in cookie cutter programs. So how's it looking? The district's entire black student population has dropped quite a bit since that 2010 audit, but the number of black students in special ed has gone down more than twice as much. Back then, black students were eight and a half times more likely than non-black students to be labeled emotionally disturbed. That's down to just under four and a half times more likely. Black special ed students are much less likely to be segregated in special schools today. And the district is pushing towards what's known as full inclusion, keeping special ed students in regular classes for most of the day. All that, and still, Jean Robertson says, It's absolutely out there, disproportionality. Yep, those numbers you heard at the top of the story. Nearly one in three of the district's black students today is in special ed, compared to one in eight non-black students. But here's the thing. Disproportionality doesn't necessarily mean that black students don't need special ed services. That's the crux of my tension in this work, is who do we identify, who do we not identify? What is a good referral? What is not a good referral? That is with me every single day, particularly for black children. And if a student doesn't qualify for special ed, Robertson says the district still needs to provide the kind of deep support that can help that kid do well in school, not just academically, but socially and emotionally. That's the goal. And there are some bright spots where it seems to be working. Why the hell be in a job? Global climate change. You guys do know global climate change is not real. Oh, you're funny, funny. These students are giving an end-of-the-semester presentation at Downtown High School. It's a continuation school for students 16 and older. So by definition, they didn't succeed in the district's so-called comprehensive high schools. Downtown High is like a microcosm of San Francisco's black student crisis. It has a disproportionately high number of black students, and just under a third of them are in special ed. That's compared to a fifth of the school's non-black students. But special ed students here aren't restricted to special classes or programs. Full inclusion. Downtown High has been doing it for nearly two decades, way before the district started its push. All students take part in project-based learning, one project each semester. The students presenting their work today in a big multi-purpose room are in a project called Goal, Get Out and Learn. They build boats, go backpacking, do rope courses. This semester, they've also dug deep into the science, politics, and literature of climate change. This has a lot to do with our uh, semester's theme, human action, nature's reaction, because they're in a human-caused Armageddon, and that could happen to us if we don't shape up. This is Rashawn Chapman. He's presenting on Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, about a man and his son on a quest to survive a brutal dystopia. The road has to do with our backpacking trip because they also had to walk down like hella, like walking and walking and then some more walking. Rashawn's almost 18. Before he got here in the fall of 2017, he was tanking hard in high school. I didn't really have that much support. I was really like by myself, so I was skipping a lot more. I pretty much like stopped going. Like they didn't really understand what like was going on with me and stuff. Part of what was going on, Rashawn has some chronic health issues, so he's out sick a lot. It looked to me like, oh, like look at this high slacker right here. Like, he's not gonna do. Shit. You feel me? I didn't, I didn't hurt at all. Rashawn had been in special ed through seventh grade for vision and handwriting disorders that can interfere with learning. He got some intensive therapy and other individualized help. It was good. I loved it. It was way better. It was way easier for me than, like, not having services. But it didn't last. Pretty much once I hit, like, eighth grade, they kind of were just like, oh, just put me under the rug. It's whatever. 
Rashan and his grandma say the district told them he no longer qualified for special ed. They placed him on what's known as a 504 plan instead. That's kind of special ed light for students with disabilities. It can be a good thing. There's no special ed label, and you can have a 504 plan in college. But Rashan says he wasn't getting the support he needed. So while he failed out of high school, he and his grandma waited for a new individualized education program, that thing that spells out a special ed student's needs and services. The whole semester I was there, I didn't have my IEP meeting. Now we're supposed to been have it. They were like, oh, it's whatever. He get an IEP meeting when he gets it. Sometimes what a student needs to succeed is someone to see him, to know him. Downtown High's leaders say the school's whole philosophy is about that. Assistant Principal Todd Williams used to work as a district special ed administrator, and he's African-American. He knows that plenty of black students don't get the services they need, like Rashawn, and others wind up in special ed for the wrong reasons. Let's face it, the students are subject to the largest society. The largest society is racist. The city is extremely racist. So the people in the school are going to experience the same sort of thing, the little the kids. It's this yeah. misperception of who they are. I don't think they were, it was malicious or anything. This is unconscious. Williams and his team say they have black students at Downtown High with IEPs who no longer need them, who maybe shouldn't have ever had them. But there's also misidentification, students whose behavioral outbursts masked unidentified learning problems. And under-identification, often of quieter kids. Williams says his school is not afraid to refer them to special ed, despite what several school administrators told me was pressure from the district to keep numbers down, to reduce disproportionality. At our school, our feeling is like a social justice thing. As for Rashawn, he says he started getting the help he needed even without an IEP. Once I got here, like, I instantly had support. Just being in goal has helped me like a lot. And now I'm going to graduate on time now. Rashawn says if he hadn't landed at downtown, he's pretty sure he would have dropped out of high school. Today, he's riffing on Cormac McCarthy. I realize that what Downtown High is doing and the district is working to replicate, it means kids like Rashawn are much less likely to end up like Daryl Lester, Larry P. the man. He started school before federal law even guaranteed special ed students the right to a free and appropriate public education in what the law calls the least restrictive environment. He didn't stand much of a chance. Daryl's been clean and sober for 18 years now, he tells me, happily married for 14. He says he's worked hard to shake the legacy of shame. I'm not bashful like I used to be, to where I kept everything hidden, tried to make like I'm this person, knowing good and well I'm not that person. I'm broke, I'm poor, but I'm making it. All that he lost by not getting an education, though, it still causes him pain. Sometimes I'd be down here by myself, and she'd come downstairs, what's wrong with you? What you crying for? And they say grown men don't cry. That's a lie. Men cry, especially if they ain't got what they want. It hurts on the inside, but you have to swallow your pride and look over it and just find some strength somewhere and say, hey, come on, you could do this, I'm better than this, and that gets me through the day. I keep thinking about how easy it would have been to send Daryl on a different journey. If educators had helped him with his reading, if they hadn't labeled him incapable and saddled him with such low expectations, 
If they'd gotten how frustrated all that made him, instead of punishing him for his anger. Yes, lots has changed for students in SFUSD today, but I realize Daryl still has so much to teach us. I'm Lee Romney. You've been listening to A Legacy of Mistreatment on Making Contact. This story first aired on CrossCurrents at KALW-FM. It's part of the series Learning While Black, The Fight for Equity in San Francisco Schools. It was reported with the support of the Fund for Journalism on Child Wellbeing, a program of the University of Southern California Center for Health Journalism. The reporter is Lee Romney. Editor, Lisa Morehouse. Engineer, Tarek Fuda. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Redman, Producers Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamirani. Audience Engagement Director Sabine Blazin. Outreach and Distribution Coordinator Dylan Hoyer. And I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.